Hello and welcome to another episode of What Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your host, your grain, chats with a special guest every week about horror. And in particular, we chat about a certain subject or topic that I've previously randomly chosen. So this week's topic is paganism, um, one that I've obviously touched before with my pagan versus Christian um, episode, which was one of the very early ones back in the day. Uh, But this week is all about proper full-on paganism without Christianity, kind of. Um, So my guest this week is Dr. Vincent Gain, and together we will be talking about 2022's You Are Not My Mother, as well as 2017's Pie Wacket. Um, So here it is, my chat with Dr. Vincent Gain about paganism in horror. I would like to welcome to What a Scream, Dr. Vincent Gain. How are you? Well, hello, Igraine. I am most well. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I've been listening to it for quite a while, and it's delightful to be a part of it myself. Hello, all of the lovely listeners out there. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. Um, I am super excited to talk about our topic today. But just before we do, would you like to introduce yourself to listeners and let them know what you do? Certainly. Um, well, I am a university lecturer um, at the University of Lancaster, where I teach media and cultural studies. I am an academic, therefore, in general, and I have um, researched and published extensively um, in the area of film studies. Um, I've published a book on uh, Michael Mann. I have uh, published articles on other directors like James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow, as well as articles and book chapters on um, the superhero genre, as well as the James Bond franchise. What I haven't done much of in the terms of academic research is horror. So it's interesting to be bringing my um, academic eye and background to the discussion of horror in a different sort of context. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into horror? And do you remember what the first horror film was you ever saw? Well, it's certainly, I'm often struck by how late I am to the party because I hear about um, other people on podcasts like this saying that they got into horror when they were way too young, you know, seeing things like The Exorcist at the age of seven. I'm like, what? 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 <laughs> it, I was a total wuss. Ghostbusters freaked me out. Okay, that was my limit. So I guess... Ghostbusters might have been the first horror film I saw, and I didn't watch all of it. The point was (laughs) 10 when it came on TV, 9 or 10 when it was on TV in the late 80s. Um, And yeah, the bit after Sigourney Weaver gets, you know, captured by her armchair, I'm like, no, I'm done. I'm I'm out. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that would, that's humiliating, I suppose. Um, I remember in the 90s watching some stuff on uh, TV, such as um, um, The Shining and not being, not really getting it. So I wasn't particularly bothered and also Misery, Alien, um, classics, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose, like a lot of people, but at a later stage of life, what got me into horror was probably, in terms of a single film, was Scream, which mm-hmm. um, I saw in my first year as an undergraduate. Um, and in, and it was the first time I'd seen a horror film like that in a cinema setting. It was university um, film society screening. And to see a movie like that surrounded by an audience, I think, gives one a certain, um, it gives one a certain thrill. It, it, it adds to the experience, I think, quite significantly. And I think, and then after that, I was in film generally. So I was absorbing film. I was learning film mm-hmm. theory. I was seeing all sorts of things. And horror was something I saw along the way, along with other things, but didn't really seek out. So I think my true horror initiation only came about a few years ago when I discovered the beauty of horror podcasts, um, especially the evolution of horror Um, and the faculty of horror, Mm -hmm. both of which sort of introduced me to the multiple um, forms of intellectual discussion that horror can do, but also the great warmth and inclusivity um, Mm -hmm. of um, horror discussion. And as we like to say, and as we are well aware, the horror community. And thanks to those podcasts, I've then found online communities. And I've also made a point of um, visiting, uh, of 
engaging with fans online and in person, having now been to Frightfest in London three times, as well as in Glasgow one time. And indeed, um, at Frightfest, I met you along with several of your other guests um, Mm -hmm. and those from the other podcasts I've mentioned. So I'd say horror's been there in the background, I suppose, Mm -hmm. all my life, but I have steadily been getting closer to it. And now I feel it wrapped around me as it's like I've become part of a community um, in which people agree to a certain belief. You know, we sort of adhere to things and it's almost like some sort of alternative religion (laughs) oh my god which nicely ties into what we're doing but before that i really love that you know as you said i get a lot of guests be like i saw you know terrible films at five years old and and then like me there's the ones that got into it as a teenager but like talking to someone who got into it kind of more as their journey into adulthood and finding comfort in how horror is this massive tradition like you don't really get the same community around rom-coms i mean maybe you do maybe there is a whole twitter online community of rom-com fans but it always seems like horror is bigger than the films themselves or the media themselves and it's really nice that someone's kind of found that and that i found it as well as an adult because i always thought horror was quite an individual thing but then you meet people that are just as messed up as you are so that's always think, nice <laughs> yeah absolutely i think that's a key part of it that um i mentioned the inclusivity um horror has a tendency i think to very much speak to the um to the marginalized um it's um, one thing that i have learned in you know hearing the other responses that people have to to um horror is it's something that um can often speak particularly to um to the queer community to people of color um to women um and which and now i am i will say i am a straight white cis male so i am very much the establishment so um, but I never felt particularly mainstream myself as much as I, you know, absorb and research and enjoy, um, you know, everything from um, Marvel to um, Michael Bay to Steven Spielberg to, um, as I mentioned, <coughs> um, filmmakers like uh, Christopher Nolan and James Cameron. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I that horror is kind of more, it's, it's a fun thing because it's not something I'm researching. It's a place where I get to you know, hang out with like-minded people. And I realized one of the points of that is I used to do a lot of theater. And then after a while, I just couldn't, didn't have the time for it anymore. And it was shortly after that, I discovered these podcasts and then got to the horror community. So perhaps it's kind of filled a gap that was missing for me. Okay, so let's chat about our topic for this week, which is pagan horror or paganism within horror. Um, What did you think of the subject when I approached you with it? Well, the first thing that came to mind was, God, that's broad. Um, And I started thinking, okay, that's probably pagan. That's probably pagan. Hang on. I bet some of these have been covered on the podcast already. The first thing that came to mind was the Wicker Man, uh, which you'd already covered. Um, So I started, so I did a bit of Googling to say, right, find a list of um, uh, pagan horror films. Okay, here's a bunch of pagan horror films. Let's now look down the list of episodes of What a Scream, what has not been covered. Okay, okay, okay. And then I came up with a list. And as I recall, I sent you the list and your response was, okay, that's a range. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. For me, I find paganism and horror. There's always like two camps. There's the almost like Christian versus pagan, which I've already done, you know, where pagans are the baddies and uh, they're, they're terrible human sacrificing people and then there's also these ones which i feel that we've kind of covered um is that paganism is a religion it's you know a way of life it's something that sometimes still seeps into society as well which i'll kind of touch on with the the film that i chose um and i i just love the broad i mean it is a fantastically broad topic um but I, I just love the range it does have in horror. So what do you think about its depiction within horror films? I think um, you make a very good point there that on the one hand, one can think about um, paganism as being kind of in opposition to 
Christianity. Um, if, if I was to think, and that was kind of what veered me away from certain titles. Like um, one could say The Witch um, is a pagan film. However, in that you very much got this idea of a figure that is satanic, um, someone that is very much in opposition to the very to the Puritan to the Puritan um, faith that we see in the main characters. So I felt that it would be interesting. Well, let's not go with something where Christianity is particularly um, prominent. Same, it's same goes for something like The Exorcist, um, that is very much um, to do with Christianity. So I thought it would be interesting. Say, although Christianity um, can be operate as the opposition to something pagan it's i think it was more interesting to look into what we consider to be pagan horror that was operating somewhat independently that didn't require um we don't need to think about pagan as the alternative to christianity let's just look at the pagan ideas the pagan faith or just the, the pagan events um on their own as something that is more standalone and um yeah i did come up with you know an extensive list uh, these are not the titles we actually went for but um for the list here's a peek behind the curtain listeners um, about some of the possibles um some of the things films i suggested were um uh, were ready or not starry eyes a dark song um sinister the craft uh, haxan baskin um or any of those would have been fascinating to discuss, I think. Um, but they are not what we chose. No. Um, I like the way as well that I've always said I'm not a massive fan of the genre, but I think I'm a, more of a fan of modern day folk horror. But it is very much the basis of a lot of uh, folk horrors, um, as well as occult horrors as well. Um, and I really like this. Paganism's always seen as kind of old it's it's the old way the old religion and it's always had this dichotomous relationship within the modern and the new ways um and so i i really like it as a basis for folk horror as well um are you a fan of folk horror at all uh, yes in some in most respects i am um, i mentioned the witch before i love that um i love the blair witch project um but <laughs> i will say this something that tends to get me give me a lot of side eye from horror fans i don't like the Wicker Man. I don't like it either, thank God. Okay. Hey, <laughs> high five. <Yay. laughs> yeah, no, I think the Wicker Man is silly um, and uninvolving and it does not work for me. Um, and I'm often slightly baffled as to when people say, oh, yes, yes, the Wicker Man, it's got all this great stuff. And I'm like, really? And, and I keep going back to it to say, what am I missing? Nah, still not working. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, and of course, yes, there's a, a lot of crossover between pagan, between folk horror and occult. Um, but I think, and I suppose any of the titles that I suggested and those that we're actually going to discuss could just as easily fit into those categories as well. Um, in the case, but I think folk horror has proved especially interesting, particularly over the, I mean, there's a lot of discussion that we're now in a golden age of horror. And I think folk horror has been particularly interesting um, with releases like um, Midsommar, for instance. Um, it's showing there's there's a lot to be done with looking at, there's a, there's a lot to be found when we look at alternatives to the mainstream, which perhaps, broadly speaking, is what horror is often about. And it's certainly, sort of that is pretty much a definition of pagan, because um, I was looking up what pagan means. Pagan can mean um, polytheistic, as in multiple um, deities, or it can just mean not Christian. Okay, so let's start off with the first film then. That was your choice. Would you like to introduce it and give us a brief synopsis, please? Sure thing. Well, the film that I chose is twenty-seven. Is a 2017 Canadian film, Piwacket. Piwacket um, Concern is uh, written and directed by Adam MacDonald. It stars Laurie Holden, Nicole Monotz, and Chloe Rose. And... What happens is a frustrated and angst-ridden teenage girl is moved um, abruptly by her mother to a home in the woods. Um, The teenager, uh, Leia, is not best pleased with this and resorts to the dark arts, to calling up a demon known as Piwacket to kill her mother. And as is often the case, I suppose, with 
teenagers acting out, it gets out of hand, shall we say. And uh, yeah, she quickly comes to regret it. So yeah, that's broadly speaking, Pie Wackett. Okay. And what made you choose the film? Are you a fan of it? Well, um, partly because I had seen it before. Um, so I thought that it would make sense to come back rather than approaching this discussion with something completely new. It would make sense to look at something I had seen previously. So I would have a um, another view on it. I'd also heard it discussed um, very um, eruditely on the Faculty of Horror. And I thought, OK, well, there's a lot of interesting things to be said um, from others. So I can probably say interesting things as well. I hope. Um Watching it a second time, um, I was very glad I chose it because I think it does make for a really nice um, companion piece to the to the film that you picked. Um, but I have to say, I had a lot more problems with it. I realised when I watched it the first time, I had only remembered a few aspects of it. And watching it this time, I was like, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. Okay, that's a bit of a problem. Mm, yeah, I'm not convinced by that. And what I found is, what I would say is, if I was to summarize the film is i think it's very well directed but not necessarily well written i think some of it is overly convenient even though um when you're actually in the process of watching it it feels often quite claustrophobic and does a nice line in what i call predatory visuals which we can talk more about what do you think of it um i I think like yourself, the first time I watched it, I was very unbothered by it. I was kind of like, meh. Um, and then when I rewatched it for this episode, a lot of things kind of jumped out at me that I was like, ugh, like really? Like the whole, one of the main problems I have with her, and I guess that's coming from like my heavy metal background, but I'm like, why does she have to be a goth who's into heavy metal? Like there's just this stereotype of these kind of teenagers that wear black or listen to black metal or death metal that they're all into the occult and they all want to kill their parents and it's just like why do we have to lean into that stereotype like why couldn't she have been a cheerleader who loves going to the mall with her friends and was like I want to call up that's what I want to see I don't want it like I'm just really bored of that trope um and I guess that derides my enjoyment of this film because looking at it, like like you said, visually it's stunning. Like I love the woods and how this house looks like this big, dark, almost Norwegian style kind of wooden house. And it's it's very ominous and, you know, the, the, the music goes with it and the, the trees feel so overbearing and claustrophobic. But all of that is just, like you said, put out the window because I just can't get behind the storyline. Like why would you go from oh, my mom has made me move to I want to kill her. Like, it just doesn't connect well in my head. Um, what were your problems with it? Well, sim- kind of, well, I would say comparable to yours, although also quite distinct. Um, okay, I don't have a heavy metal background, so that aspect, so it's fascinating that that's obviously something you bring to it. Um, but I certainly agree that there was, this is where I talk about the sort of the... Um, the laziness perhaps or the the lack of development um in the writing in that okay teenager um moody okay in black yeah uh likes death metal um goth good um has a group of friends who are kind of like her but only only insofar as they need to be and similarly uh, yes mother has problems she's bereaved that'll do uh yes right the father is dead what was her relationship with the father? Doesn't matter. Moving on. Um, and the first time we see the mother, um, she is um, she's pushing something under the bed. And on my second viewing, which I didn't remember what it was, and I was like, "Oh, was she like on tranquilizers or some other kind of drugs, maybe?" Um, and it set and it sets up this very nice sort of promising aspect that she says to her daughter, "I don't care what you do." It's like, "Oh, fine." So it's so she's neglectful. We've got aspects here of. Um, don't know if I'd call it um, abuse, but certainly um, un- it's certainly some questionable parenting. But then the film doesn't lean into that. But where I think the film falling into the in, talking about the pagan side of it, I felt that the pagan belief was too easy. I, un- I mean, on the one hand, I could get behind a moody teenager who wants to kill her parent. Okay. 
I'm not saying that's fine, but I'm saying as a as a narrative device, fine. I thought her getting to the point of wanting to kill her mother, who feels that she's ruined her life, okay. Especially when we see um, the mother is, yeah, she is neglectful. She describes her um, um, Leia's friends as losers, and that Leia's going to be a loser as well. So I think we do get into, you know, um, some... Um, certainly some emotional abuse side of things there trouble is the film doesn't lean into it the mother isn't bad enough in that regard for us to necessarily be on board however the notion that leia is um, you know so angry at her mother she wants to kill her fine however the fact that she then thinks "Ooh, i know this pagan stuff this demon stuff that i've read we see her early on getting a book signed by this um professor which gives details of this kind of mythology and the rituals for summoning them. But I feel she believes it too easily. If you wanted to suddenly kill somebody to immediately think, ah, yes, to go straight to the idea of using black magic. It's like, I didn't get any sense of why does she believe this will work? You know, if you want to kill your parent, then there are less, there are bigger, you don't, there are other ways that don't require such a leap of faith. And I also think the problem is kind of compounded later on um, when the uh, professor who has written the book that we see her getting signed early on, um, she contacts him and he immediately is on board and says, oh dear, this is very bad. You have summoned a demon. This is dangerous. You need to do this. I'm like, hang on. Why Why are people so invested in this so easily? Um, now, the figure of the now, you know, speaking as an academic, um, I don't expect depictions of academics in movies to be realistic. Of course not. Um, if they were, it would be very boring. But the figure of um, of an academic expert, a professor who appears and offers kind of an alternative view uh, for some context, can be used quite well. I think it's used not unreasonably in the very dubious sci-fi horror of the fourth kind. Um, It's used um, quite effectively in Paranormal Activity. Um, It's used, I think, very effectively in Sinister. Um, It's even, hell, it's even there in The Mask. And the common thing across all of these is that the professor character is presented, yes, I'm an expert in this field, as a sociologist, as an anthropologist, as a mythologist. No, I'm not a witch doctor. <laughs> Whereas here, it seems he is a witch doctor, effectively. And the and Leia's belief, as well as his, as well as the professor's, it's too easy. And I feel that this kind of underplays the mythology, the pagan aspect of it, um, which is a shame because, as I say, I think this is these are problems in the writing. Whereas visually great as you said the the cabin this almost scandinavian style um home it's it's surprising how effective it can be to have this um it's in this light wood the light wood of the place that um uh, the the, uh leia and her mother moved to it's effective in that respect and the woods look wonderful and they are very eerie very evocative um and there were points in this when it kind of reminded me of the Evil Dead, but with the volume, you know, turned down. Um, imagine the Evil Dead restrained, and you've got um, a fair um, approximation of the style of Piwacket, because um, there's quite off. There are some points where you've got these wide-angle frames, um, and there's something. Whoa! What was that thing in the background? It's only there enough to give you that little shiver down the spine. And then points where the camera is tracking behind Leia, following her. As I say, this is what I mean by predatory visuals. It's like, you are not safe. And it's a shame to have, you know, strong visuals, but undermined by, well, un- by underdeveloped narrative. Yeah, it definitely feels as if the visuals came first. Um and then they were like, oh, you know, we have these these images in our heads and this is where we want it set. And this is, you know the kind of jump scares we want or how we want to build that tension and then they were like shit quick think up a story um think up a few characters um and it just never felt like it connected the visuals to the story I mean like you were saying about the the professor who wrote the book like 
if you believed in this and you were writing a book and you were doing detailed descriptions of rituals and you saw that all your fans were these teenagers and like you know you'd be like wow i'm really irresponsible like i shouldn't put this out um and it it just felt a bit uh, yeah i mean it just felt a bit like if he did believed it why would he just do a zoom call with her why wouldn't he be like shit you know like i've got to get there and supervise you because you are a teenager um and be a responsible adult in this and yeah it just felt a bit reductive of a lot of characters like it felt reductive of teenagers it felt reductive of parents going through grief um and obviously suffering from some form of mental health um yeah it just it just didn't connect well for me and uh, even the character of Pie Wacket, like we see it kind of in the, the final sequence, um, it just felt like, you know, it was the the witch, a crone-like character with like long black hair, and then it disappeared again. And it was just like, well, where, where does that go? Like, why did you bring that in? I almost would have preferred if they'd have kept it quite like, just kept it to her mother's image rather than bring in this like crone like witch character i know they were hinting at the whole witch thing throughout but it just it just didn't make sense for me no i think that's fair um i i liked the visuals of pie wacket because it had um the pie wacket thing had a good sort of um uncanny vibe had an uncanny vibe in that yes on the one hand it was the fairly stereotypical crone look but it was also um an entity with it had these weird movements um so something like um well i mean i mentioned uh fright fest a film that was at fright fest in 2022 that did this this device i think far more successfully was um the mexican film Usera, where Mm, also known as the bone woman um and there is this thing in that which moves in a very sort of unnatural creepy way other examples would be like in the exorcist 3 or um scary stories to tell in the dark where you've got something it's got a human shape but it is not moving like a human and that i think again well shot you know well put together you know decent effects decent framing a good use of the monster um i will say though i think that perhaps the lack of time we saw that creature as well as the um abrupt appearance and disappearance of the professor character we can maybe only put put that down to budgetary restraints it may be that you know could only get that actor who plays professor for you know one day yes one day we'll do him doing the book signing and then we have him on the um, face on the FaceTime type call. Yeah, that's all we've got him for. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you think about the ending? Because obviously it's left it quite open to a certain degree where you don't know whether it is just Leia's mind that has kind of gone out of control and she's killed her mother and she's seen all these things or whether it is actually the product of messing with, you know, black magic and the occult. I lean on the side of I think there was I think that there was something supernatural um, going on. I think Leia successfully um, summoned Pie Wacket. Um, what again? It's always a bit. It always feels rather arrogant to say when, as a viewer, to look at a film and say, um, "Well, here's the way you should have done it," <laughs> which is. But um, at the same time, it's very difficult not to do that. So I'm going to do it. Um, which is the fight. The very final scene of the film is um leia in a police interview room and a, de- and a detective is asking her about what happened and i do remember thinking would have been quite cool to have that as like a wraparound um so you could have started off with like saying okay leia so tell us what happened and then we spend the whole film and the sort of awareness something went horrible but we don't know what um so i would say come the end of it but because that scene is just there at the end it does leave a slight I don't think it's ambiguous as to what happened. I think Piwacket fooled Leia into thinking that her mother was already dead and that the thing in her home was actually Piwacket. No, 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 no. The thing you thought was your mother outside, that was Piwacket, and this thing you're now in your home with, that's your mother. Oh, and you've burnt her to, to, 
to an ash, to ash, as the detective says, you burned her to ash. Um, where it is perhaps a bit more ambiguous is what's going to happen next. Is Leia going to attempt to tell the truth? Is she going to go into a, an asylum? Um, is she going to go into... So what happens to her is quite open. But having said that, I can think of other instances where I have seen that done better. Um, Slapface um, from a couple of years ago, I think, did the similar thing, but far more grimly and far more effectively. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it leaves it ambiguous. The trouble is it's ultimately kind of hollow with what we're left with. Yeah, I still have to see Slapface. That's another film that's on my to-be-watched to list that seems to be never-ending. Um, yeah, so the depiction of paganism itself, we see her kind of going into the woods, and of course it's like the blood ritual, and there's pentagrams, and et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it's quite, again, this film just seems to be tropish, but I feel like it's very stereotypical of what people think paganism is. It's or pagan think, bingo. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if you were to do a drinking game, you'd be hammered afterwards. Um, and I feel like it's very much saying that paganism is anti-society, that it's beyond normal society, which I think is in great contrast to what we're going to talk about next, uh, the next film. Um, what what did you think about this narrative as paganism being anti-society, anti-normality? In Piwacket. Um, again, it wasn't really developed enough because the Leia and her friends, they all appear to be into it, but into it in a way that they might just as well be into heavy metal music, might be into video games. Um, it's just another thing they do, which is why I think because it was presented as it's just a thing they do, um, that they, um, then for them to, for Leia to start to embrace brace it so unquestioningly and said oh here's this thing we just do fun it's not okay perhaps the best comparison would be if they were D D players D D players you know they do their games they have a good time it's something that um you know that brings that you know brings them together and um it, it, it is a great activity but i don't think that means that um D D players will actually believe what they're doing there's a, they understand there is a clear division between fantasy and reality and i think the i think piwacket does not take the time to establish our um the four teenagers as being interested as being sufficiently interested and sufficiently engaged in paganism as a practice compared to say the craft where you've got the four girls in that who are very much presented as being outcasts um, that they are that it make it kind of makes sense that they would be so they be into this and why they be into it and it doesn't and again like going back to what you said the stereotype of well because these are teenagers who wear a lot of black and have certain you know well not just black but also the style they're wearing in general yeah of course they they just believe in in paganism yeah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> uh, so would you recommend Pie Whack It to horror fans? Um, tentatively. I would say it's worth a watch, um, but if you start thinking about it, it will very easily fall apart. Yeah. Um, I sounds terrible, but I don't think I would even recommend... Not that I wouldn't recommend. If someone said to me, like, would you watch, you know, I, I think I might put Pie Whack It on. Do you think I should? I'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, but I wouldn't go out of my way to recommend it. I wouldn't be like, you know what, you've got to watch this film. Um, and I think it's just because it's very middle of the road. Like, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's a terrible film, but it's also not like a must watch at the same time. That's almost worse, isn't it? To be very mm. middle of the road when it comes to movies. Um, I ask. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what would be, say if somebody, what, what are there movies that you would tell people to just avoid? They said, oh, I'm going to put on so-and-so. And would you say, no, don't, don't, just don't waste your time on that. Oh God. So like I, so there's so many movies. I'd probably say stuff like Ghost Shark and uh, stuff like that, like really bad films that are so bad, people actually might enjoy them. Um, I'm trying to think of a film that I was like, I hated it, like don't bother watching it. Um, I think one of the only ones that really comes to my head is, have you ever seen Verotica? 
no, I saw Veronica, but I think that's different. No, no. So Veronica is a it's an anthology horror that's done by um, the vocalist from the Misfits, uh, Danzig, and it's just oh, it is awful. But I almost want people to watch it because it's so awful. So that just speaks speaks volumes for me. Yeah, you want to inflict that pain on people. I do, I do. What about yourself? Is there a film that you would be like? absolute don't watch for people um well yeah uh, although at the same time i can see there's a reason to watch this film for the purposes of completion if you want to see all the installments in this franchise you probably have to but i would say if you have some you know paint drying that might be a better use of your time than to watch that than watch rob zombies halloween oh controversial yeah i you know i I, I watched it last year specifically because I was uh, making a point of going through the whole of the Halloween franchise. And yikes, it is genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen. Um, so I would only say, I would say only watch it if you absolutely think it's necessary for you to see every Halloween movie. Otherwise, don't. <laughs> I think I'd say the same about Exorcist 2 as well. Fair enough. Never seen it. But I've never heard anything good about it. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to my choice, which will probably come as no surprise to people whatsoever. But I chose uh, You Are Not My Mother, which is a 2022 Irish folk horror film written and directed by Kate Dolan. Um, It stars Hazel Dupe, Carolyn Bracken, Jordan Jones, (coughs) J. Jordan Paul Reed and Ingrid Craigie. Um, It centres around Char who is a young girl who lives with her grandmother and her mother, Angela. Um, Angela suffers from, it's never really said, but what I can assume is bipolar disorder or some sort of depression. Um, And she goes missing only to return quite soon afterwards. Very different. Um, At first you think it's because she's on like new meds or it's just the illness. Um, But then through a series of um, unfortunate events such as the poisoning of uh, Shar's uncle. Um, Shar soon, le- soon learns from her grandmother that her mother is a changeling and that when Shar was younger, she was taken by the, the fairies and was replaced by a changeling. And her grandmother had to take her to fire to bring her back. And so the changelings, the, the fairies are back now to get revenge. Um, by assuming the form of her mother. Um, so what did you think of this movie? I loved it. I saw this at uh, Glasgow Fright Fest um, in March 2022. Um, Kate Dolan, the director, did a Q&A afterwards. Um, and I was really... St- and it, actually, that Fright Fest was especially good for Irish horror. Um, there, was a, there were a number of titles that festival um, in that area. And this was definitely one of the strongest offerings of the whole festival. Um, and so when you suggested it, I was like, oh, cool, get to watch that again. Um, and yeah, to watch it again, I think it's a wonderfully slow burn um, piece of horror, because which um, it's very dour and low key, uh, much it's generally quite, it's not exactly dark, but it is not brightly lit. Um, I think, I don't know if the sun shines at all during the movie. Um, I mean, it doesn't here in Ireland anyway, so, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of true. <laughs> okay, well, good to know. Um, and yeah, but I feel it's, 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 but I find it utterly enthralling and it does a wonderful job of balancing where Pie Wackett didn't, You Are Not My Mother does balance mental health, familial struggles, teenage troubles, and this sense of creeping otherworldly menace. And the fact that this was Dolan's um, feature debut, I think it deserves mention alongside other feature debuts like The Witch, like Censor, like The Babadook. Um, it's yeah, it it is so it it does so much while at the same time not having a great deal. It's a wonderful demonstration of um, how much you can do um, with a horror concept because there's only there there aren't many characters in terms of you know the, and those that are um and but that means we get to spend a certain uh, quite a bit of time with the small group of characters and it's set in a housing estate 
predominantly. Yeah, a housing estate um, beside um, in an area that has that it seems to be relatively recently developed, um, and yeah, I think it, it it manages to assemble all of these different elements along with the pagan uh, mythology side of things beautifully. It is yeah, it's in, it's yeah enthralling is a word I would use to describe it. I think you like it too. Oh my god, it was my number one film of 2022 um, when everyone did their top tens. Um, I saw it at Dublin Film Fest last year and it got a standing ovation um, when it ended. And the reason I love it so much, like I, you know, I love my Irish horror. I'm always going to champion homegrown horror. But I find with Irish folk horror, a lot of the time with past offerings, it's very much like either English or very urban couple go to the Irish countryside and they are attacked by unknown Irish country folk or, you know, fairies or, and it's all very, it feels very colonialist, um, which is why I don't like stuff like the Hallow or Wakewood. Um, it just feels a bit ick sometimes when you're, you're looking at that. Um, whereas with You Are Not My Mother, like you said, it's set in a housing estate. It's set in inner city Dublin. It's set amongst Dublin people. And it's just such an accurate representation of Irish life, of what it is like to live in these kind of places. And the fact that here in Ireland, even though we're a predominantly Catholic country and have been for several hundred years, our pagan roots are still very, very visible in everyday life. So even when we're one of the first um, shots is of Shar's house in the kitchen. And in the background, you can see what is known as a Bridget's cross, which is like reeds made into like a four pointed. I don't really know how to describe it. And that is the cross of St. Bridget who comes from the pagan goddess uh, Bridge, who is like the goddess of women and children and all that kind of fertility. Um, and that's something that is still hung in houses today. A lot of the time we still celebrate Samhain or Halloween by building bonfires. Like that's, that's something that was done pre-Christianity and we still do it today. Um, even the fact that Samhain is Halloween and that is an Irish pagan holiday. Um, and I just really love the way it kind of, it meshed, like you said, really well, the modern kind of um, modern day elements with these pagan elements and it didn't feel out of place like perhaps pie whack it was. I mean, even one of the opening shots is her mother has to take her to school and they run into this black horse. And I know to outsiders that probably feels completely like random, but it's not because people still have houses, uh, still have horses in inner city Dublin. And you'll still, still find them in like housing estates. You will just find a horse on the green. Um and not only that, but a black horse in Irish pagan mythology represents the puka, which is a demon. Um, and so the fact that they come across this large black horse from the very beginning is very kind of uh, a forewarning of what's to come. Um, so that, yeah, that's why I love it, as well as there are some jumpy elements. And it's just it's just a great narrative. Like, I just think it's fantastic. I absolutely love this film. Yes, that's coming across. Um but what's fascinating is because all of the things you mentioned there were things that I saw, but I don't have the I don't have the cultural knowledge, um, the cultural discount to be un to understand what they mean. Despite that, I think it um, the film does a great job of making it. It doesn't feel insular. It feels very accessible because with somebody who doesn't have that um, sort of insider knowledge, if you like, um, I saw that. Um, cross of St. Bridget um, there. And I thought, oh, that's odd. Um, but that was it. But it was still a part of the mise-en-scene that um, helped set the tone. And then the black horse appearing, I was like, what? Hey, I actually wondered at one point, is that is that supernatural? Did that just come out of nowhere? Um, but the fact it was a black horse, it, yeah, it, it had suggestions. that The one thing that made me think, oh no, I think that's genuine, is because the horse has a halter on. So again, it's the mundanity um, bringing that home to it. Um, and it's interesting, you mentioned that it's a symbol of a puka? Puka. And I think, I would have to check this, but I believe in the um, James Stewart film Harvey, the invisible giant rabbit is a puka. So there's a connection. Um, but I, I think I absolutely know what you mean, though, in terms of the, in scare quotes, standard portrayal 
of Ireland. It tends in film, it often has this, well, it can have quite the folk horror vibe to it. Um, yeah, like, um, the, is it the hollow or the hallow? Yeah, where there's the single mother and the son go to that. Yeah, which um, works fine. And there's, <laughs> there's a film that's actually in cinemas right now called Unwelcome, which as I understand it is kind of... Um, an Irish equivalent of straw dogs. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I I've seen the trailer, and I'm not gonna lie; it's given me the ick a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm gonna reserve my full judgment until I've actually seen it. But I think it's just this from the trailer. What I can work out is, you know, English couple moves to the Irish countryside. There's an Irish family that have traveller connotations <laughs> and they're the baddies and mm. it's just like oh that feels a bit that feels a bit gross <laughs> yeah oh yes i mean so of course from a kind of a cultural colonial perspective it's kind of gross i think it's also worth saying from in this links back perhaps back to piewacket it's a it's lazy it's like really is that the best you could do um whereas in the case of you i have to keep reminding myself to say you are not my mother because my instinct is to say how I met your mother, which is very different. <laughs> very different. Yes. Very. Don't get those mixed up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, although kids, his no. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I another thing which I think um, elevates um, "You Are Not My Mother" over Piwacket is it does have a really good sense of the teenage isolation because in Piwacket, our protagonist Leia has this group of friends because reasons. Whereas in You Are Not My Mother, Shah is very much isolated. She is she seems to be completely alone. And what we and of course what we see several times into talking about teenage troubles, as if her home life wasn't awkward enough, she's quite um, badly bullied. Now, I was badly bullied as a child as well, so seeing bullying on screen is always a bit of a trigger for me. Um not in the sense of, you know, feeling terribly traumatized. Um, I don't want to over-dramatize myself, but in the same sense saying, okay, that made me uncomfortable. And then when bullies get their comeuppance, um, it's always a particular punch the air moment. Um, best example is the sort of climax of uh, let the right one in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what a climax that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but there are some interests, but it's interesting that we see Shah being so isolated and then she is, she runs into this, group of other of other girls who you know really fuck her up um but then one of them suzanne actually you know starts you know engaging with her she develops some she has some empathy with her and that's a really nice humanization to show here we have some bullies but guess what they are human too and they want to and one of them is engaging with her um and then there are these others who are um, Kelly is the sort of the ringleader of them who practically psychopathic. <laughs> um, but the point when um, Shah's <laughs> new mother, as it were, um, Angela, that's her name, when uh, she actually attacks them and leaves Kelly with a big, with a massive black eye. That's like, yeah, <laughs> that's one of the great things the movie does, because it brings in this new version of Angela, of um, Shah's mother, who in many ways seems a lot you know, I mean, it does seem as though her mother is now better. She has, um, you know, she's over um, her problems. Or if her condition is bipolar, I believe that comes and goes in terms of how a person interacts with the world. Um, so we see um, Angela in a much better sort of place, as it were, um, able to step in and defend her daughter, able to uh, make dinner, able to have fun with her. But I suppose we could say that. This is a film that, among other things, says trust your granny, even when she <laughs> even when she seems a bit doolally. <laughs> yes, um, my one of my again another one of my positives for this film is I really like the way it depicts mental health, um, specifically through the eyes of a child. Um, a lot of the time, I mean mother's mental health is something that is like absolute fodder for horror films like we've seen it in smile lights out babadook hereditary like it is absolute fodder um and whereas i think a lot of films can almost feel exploit like exploitative exploitative whatever the word is um and kind of uh, monstrosizes to like an extreme level mothers who suffer from mental health i feel like with 
um I was about to say how I met your mother there as well with um you are not my mother I felt like yes it makes her into a monster but because it's through the eyes of a child it's it doesn't feel as exploitative. I mean, we see Angela, like you said, it ebbs and flows with her mental illness. So there's, you know, one day where she can't get out of bed. The next day she's wearing this beautiful dress and she's making food and, you know, she's she's laughing with Char. And then we see there's one scene that really gets me is when Char is in bed and she sees her mother go to the bathroom and throws up and like gets out of her mouth like the food that she ingested earlier but notably in a way that is i mean if she had just been sticking her fingers down her throat that would be one thing but she puts her entire hand (laughs) down her gull is like okay you are not looking entirely human there mumsy yeah exactly but you could also you you imagine being a child and you're seeing your mother go through this and flip between faces and you are going to be like what is my mother like what is she she doesn't seem human she doesn't you know she's like a monster and you know the mother could just be in the bathroom like you said like throwing up because her medication makes her sick which antidepressants do make you quite nauseous sometimes but it's just through the eyes of a child that you see you know she thinks she's a changeling um and i just i love that i absolutely love that point of view Mm. yeah no i agree it um because the um one thing that i think both you are not my mother and pie do both of them quite well is to align us throughout with um, our um, teenage girl protagonist um, and does a nice job of presenting things from um, her perspective and the difficulties that she's dealing with. And in the case of Shah, um, that yeah, so she's very much somebody who is feeling alone and she is somebody who has, who will have been dealing probably with her mother's unstable mental health all her life. So small wonder she is, um, you know, not very expressive, that she's troubled, to put it mildly. Um, And that, I I guess, brings in also the questions of Shah could probably have a certain amount of fear that something might be wrong with her as well. You know, well, my mother is like this. Maybe I am like this as well. And I find it really um, effective, the point in kind of in the final act, when um, unlike Leia, in Piwacket, when Shah is faced with the possibility of the supernatural, she doesn't accept it because her because her granny starts telling her, "No, that's not your mother. We need to do such and such. We need to bring her near fire." And Shah's lack of belief in that makes perfect sense. Like, if you've got the the choice of thinking, like, "Well, my mother is not human," or my granny is very confused. It's easy to see which is um, which is more plausible, and this is a nice way that the film utilizes the, as you said, the placement of the mythology, the um, the the role of pagan beliefs within a very contemporary context, without ever forcing it, never really pushing it. There's one scene where Granny explains to Shah about her history, like so, this is what has happened, and yeah, and. Shah is understandably not entirely believing of this yeah um what did you think of the ending because I know reading if uh, and talking to a few others their opinion of the ending wasn't high they thought a lot of people thought that it shouldn't have been you know yes my mother was definitely a changeling and you know I'm going to set her on fire and they they felt that it was a very definitive ending whereas a lot of people would have liked if it was slightly left open so what what is your opinion of it i like it i think it works because what the ending does is it brings together um these various different elements so um shah has run away from home um in effect um suzanne has got her out um so it's almost so it does a nice element of almost coming of age there comes a point where the child where one's friends can become more um you know more a stronger point of connection than family um so i think it doesn't but then in similarly it does a job of um you mentioned the importance of the bonfire so that being part and it's and the finale of the film happens at um halloween sorry some some hay sawan sawan right at yeah. sawan um in the bonfire, literally. Mm-hmm. And I think 
it does that really good nice it does a really nice job of bringing together the supernatural and the human horrors because mm-hmm. you've got Kelly and the other bullies shutting Shah in the bonfire like they're actually going to set her on fire um and then it does this nice sort of shifting of loyalties as Angela appears now looking decidedly you know almost golemesque um as she's yeah she's she's come to the bonfire to save her precious as it were her precious Shah um but then we have the yeah and I think I, I understand the I I I love a bit of ambiguity myself, and I think that sometimes films that fall away from the ambiguity that if you can maintain the ambiguity throughout the entirety of the movie, well done, because I think that is really difficult, and very, very few films do that. On the other hand, if you remain ambiguous right up until the finale, and then, no, it was this, then I think that's not very satisfying. However, in the case of You Are Not My Mother, I think it's cl- it's made clear early on to the viewer what's going on. There are enough supernatural elements to make it clear, no, that's not Angela. That's just uh, something else wearing her skin, as it were. Um, we've, we see there's enough, although we're seeing it through the eyes of a child, we see enough things that are not from her perspective. Like most obviously when... Um, uh, Shah is um sorry not not Shah Angela we see her in the shower and her hair is coming off and she is there's a sense of transformation her teeth come out um and and earlier on when she does it she's dancing and she does a dance in a way that seems very unhinged and but not in an un, but she's behaving animalistically so I think by the time we get to that climax it seems clear it seems quite clear that Angela isn't Angela. Um, and I think that is fine. And it gives us, I think, quite a satisfying resolution. Now, <laughs> speaking of satisfying, it's debatable as to whether it's necessary to put the title of the movie into a character's mouth. Um, the point when Shah actually says, you are not my mother. Um, I think you can either go, that can be a punch the air moment or it can be an eye roll moment. Um, you know, take your pick. So, but I, I think it works. And then to have, and then to have that, I think, quite hopeful um, coda when the real Angela does come back. And I love the way she's, I said that there's very little sunlight in the movie. If there is a moment of sunlight, it's when Angela comes back. And perhaps it's a bit of a pathetic fallacy, I suppose. Things are better. She comes back through the door and there's a lot of, and she's wreathed in, bathed in sunlight. Um, and then there's, all, but there's also this nice continuation in the very final um, seen as um, something I had forgotten about from my first viewing is that the grandmother dies um, by the end of it. Um, but then we see at the very end, Shah is making the interesting, the protective charms um, for her mother because and it's showing again the presence and the continued presence of the pagan beliefs. Um, will continue because, you know, yeah, and, and that I think is another way that it that the film justifies clarifying its um, it's clarifying and making things unambiguous. We know what's happened, but it's not everything's back to normal. It's okay. This is the changed reality that Shah will live in, and because we've been on board for her the whole time, I think it works. Yeah, I liked the ending because for me it symbolised especially someone like a mother who has gone through really bad mental health issues that sometimes you have to go through the fire to come out the other side. And I, I really liked that symbolism that, you know, sometimes you have to burn everything down to start again in a better way. And like you said, when Angela comes in and there's the sunlight, it's this kind of notion that, yeah, sometimes things are fucking awful but if you can just go through it and pursue it pursue through these troubles obviously with help when we go to the real world you know um and plenty of support but you can come out the other side okay um so I really liked that kind of and I liked how hopeful it was um like you said with the continuation of the pagan beliefs within the family I really liked how that was kind of I mean this whole film is a symbol for it but how paganism 
within I'm talking specifically in Ireland it's still a continued thing it's still we still hang the crosses we still have the bonfires it's very much part of society whereas in contrast Piwacket that's very anti-society anti-normality whereas here it is our normality um even when people celebrate Halloween whether they're in Ireland or not and they put out a pumpkin uh, a jack-o'-lantern that's that's a pagan ritual that dated back to people used to hollow out turnips and put lights in them to ward away the evil spirits. Um, So I just like the fact that it's saying, you know, these beliefs, these pagan beliefs are always going to continue and society has, you know, absorbed them into everyday society. And I I really like that. Yeah, no, I mean, and this, and that ties to, um, and I think this idea of the, incorporation i suppose um the the role of the pagan religion um faith within this context ties to um, a particular moment in the film that was um kind of the bit that made me go get get very gleeful um when shah and her classmates go they go on a school trip um to um like a local museum and shah walks up by herself and comes into an area where there's a video um a film being projected onto a wall there and the narration for that says, you are now in a liminal space. A liminal spaces and the study of liminality is very much my shit. Um, this is where my, my research actually crosses over here, because when I talk about what my research is, I talk about it, it's about the intersection of globalization, liminality, and identity politics in media, or as I like to call it, GLIPIM. That's, the, uh, my, that's my acronym. Um, and any kind of mention of liminality, um, any exploration of that in film um, media, always um, gets me uh, always um, gets me to lean in. And so the idea of these liminal spaces, the which we see, um, we see the there's a the point in the film when um, Angela and Shah almost run into the horse is right beside this green, this big open space area. Um, where later on Shah finds Angela just appears to have just abandoned the car there. Um, so in that respect, there's this kind of liminal space sort of between the urban and the rural. And the video at the art, at the museum also talks about um, places like rivers and other areas of water. And there's a key scene when fake Angela, as it were, goes into the river, and um, it's like she's stepping into this space that is not is not of the home but is not of necessarily of the other either um it's actually quite a very scary sequence that um because shah goes in after her and then suddenly yeah angela kind of pulls her under the water it's like not fun mum. <laughs> um so and later on you we see and and much of the film takes place in these sort of in a sort of waste ground it's um the the angela and suzanne they literally climb over a wall and where are they? They're kind of behind the houses, but they're not like away from them at the same time. So it's again this liminal space um, where um, you know where the climax of the film takes happens. And what often is the and at the same and the idea of these um, beliefs. This um, it's not as you say. It's not you know oppositional as it were. It's not adversarial to the mainstream. It, but at the same time, it's not necessarily one hundred percent part of it either. It feels like these beliefs are. And these practices are, there's something that people can partake in, but there doesn't need to be seen as um, something, you know, that is aggressive, something that is, um, yeah, as I say, adversarial. It is something that is somewhere in between. And anytime I, and I think liminality is such a wonderful area for exploring all manner of different tensions. It's why in a few weeks I'm doing a whole lecture on liminality um, as a key aspect of media and cultural studies. Um, who knows? Maybe I'll use "You Are Not My Mother" as a case study. <laughs> you should just recommend it to everybody. Which leads me on to my next question: Would you recommend it to horror fans? A hundred percent, yes. Um, I saw this with a horror audience, and I and there was a very strong vibe um, when that happened. And then in the Q and A afterwards, um, yeah, there was a lot of positivity. I think towards Kate Olin. So yeah, um, I would totally recommend it. Yeah, me too. In fact, I've recommended it to two people at least this week so yeah that that just says it all for me really um yeah I love this film and I'm really excited to see what Kate Dolan does next um I think she's a real 
strong forerunner for Irish horror at the moment. Mm. Um, so out, of, I kind of know the answer, but out of the two films, which one would you recommend over the other? You are not my mother. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and chatting about paganism. But before you go, I always ask my guests, what is your favourite horror film? <laughs> well, um, my favourite horror film is my fourth favourite film of all time. But I didn't always consider it a horror film. And it's only through a and it's a film that is kind of debated over whether it is or isn't a horror film, because it's arguably it's got a narrative and an approach that is more often described as psychological thriller. But I think it is a horror film because of its tone and because for me, the fundamental element for horror is the representation of victimhood. And I think this film does that. So, yeah, as I say, it's my fourth favourite film of all time. And it is, therefore, the and it is, because it's a horror film, the only horror film to have won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Silence of the Lambs. Indeed. The Silence of the Lambs <laughs> by Jonathan Demme, 1991, is my favourite horror film. Okay, interesting. Um, I would consider it a horror as well. Um, I think horror fans do. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the you were saying about victimhood, but I also find uh, the villain. If the villain is very horror, I know it sounds really, but horror like, which he is, he's a freaking cannibal and he's scary as hell. Like that's a horror villain. That's not like some. I mean, I know we get cannibal serial killers. I know we do, and I know this is like true crime and like you said psychological thriller but Hannibal Lecter is a horror villain except arguably he's not the villain nor is he necessarily the antagonist the true (laughs) villain the monster is Buffalo Bill Bill. having said that we can also read him and that's where it gets a bit problematic do we we can certainly read him in terms of um uh well uh, forms of mental and indeed body horror in that respect as well but uh Yes, but I, but the but the reason I would say that the victimhood is so important is that throughout the film we get our hero Clary Starling is being um, is victimised by all around her, whether it's Doctor Lecter, whether it's Buffalo Bill, whether it's you know the FBI and uh, the uh, other institutions that she encounters. That's why it works for me. So. Um, Yes, I look forward to when you have an episode discussing that. <laughs> um, so if people would like to find you on social media, where can they do so? People can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd by searching at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. You can also visit uh, my blog, Vincent's Views, where I post reviews and commentary. And you can also check out my podcast, Um Invasion of the Potty People, which is a monthly genre podcast where myself and my co-hosts, James and Russell, talk news, talk uh, deep dives, talk features and offer recommendations um, for things for people to watch. Yeah. So uh, I'm quite easy to find. Yeah. Best podcast name ever, by the way. Why, thank you. (laughs) Wish I could take credit for it. So that was my chat there with Dr. Vincent Gain about paganism in horror. And together we chatted about 2017's Pie Wacket as well as 2022's You Are Not My Mother. Uh, So what did you think of this week's episode? And what do you think about depiction of paganism in horror as a whole? Let me know on Twitter at what underscore scream, uh, as well as Facebook and Instagram. Uh, what a screen podcast and don't forget to rate and review and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you are listening to me on um reviews and all of that kind of stuff really helps uh with the reach um and don't forget we also have a letterbox where you can keep up to date on the films that i will be covering as well as any films that i have just been watching um And we also have a Ko-fi as well if you would like to donate to the podcast um, just to help things move along and to, yeah, just help help out with the podcast if you would like, if you enjoy. Thank you very much if you can. Um, So, yes, next week I will be discussing food in horror with uh, editor of Moving Pictures Film Club, Tim Coleman. And together we'll be chatting about two films that kind of have to do with food. So I will talk to you next week, I guess. Uh, Don't forget to stay horrific and goodbye.